Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. Oh, my goodness. You guys are in for a treat. Uh, Dr. McLaughlin, or I'll just call her Rebecca, um, wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Christians for the World's Largest Religion, which was published by Crossway um, and the Gospel Coalition in 2019. And it became the Christianity Today's Book of the Year um, for 2020. Um, Dr. McLaughlin holds a PhD in English literature from Cambridge, England, and a theology theology degree from Oak Hill College in London. She uh, wrote another kind of uh, kids version, not kids, a youth version of the book um, called, uh, wait for it, wait for it, 10 Questions Every Christian Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. And she recently released... Yeah, a very controversial book called The Secular Creed, Engaging the Contemporary Claims. We talk about all of this and more. And oh my gosh, I, I, I've only known Rebecca from a distance. We've talked on the phone once. We've emailed back and forth. I actually roped her into another project I'm working on, which I'll probably reveal to the public in due time. But I've just been really quickly impressed with Rebecca, her wisdom, her wit, her intelligence, her um, her faithfulness to the gospel, and her humility and her ability to really kind of see the other side. I mean, I was really impressed in this conversation that um, unlike some like defenders of the faith, you know, the apologists, they just kind of come out and win the argument. Uh, Rebecca's a fantastic listener. She's very humble and understands kind of where people are coming from, very relational. And I just, I didn't want to stop talking to her. She just, I, this, the hour flew by and I was like, ah, I got to cut this off. You know, I, even though I have like a thousand more questions. So I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, please check out her books. Uh, I literally just got right, run off, right when I got off the podcast, I ordered the youth book that she wrote because I've got four for youth. And I'm like, dude, we need to go through this. So my family and I are going to go through this book. I didn't even tell Rebecca that, but I'm super excited about that. If you would like to support the show, patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. And all the info is in the show notes. So let's get to know the one and only Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. All right, I'm here with uh, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, we have only met briefly over email, um, but man, I keep seeing your name pop up kind of everywhere and have been so impressed with how you are engaging some really difficult topics. And I was so delighted when I reached out and I'm like, oh, she's probably going to be too busy to come on the podcast. Um, I'm, I know you got a lot going on, but when you said you'd, you're willing to come on Theology Nara, I was so stoked. So thank you so much for being on the show. You're so welcome. Uh, why don't we start by just telling, uh, for those who might not know your name, like who is Rebecca McLaughlin and uh, how did you get to be doing what you're doing right now? I mean, entering into some pretty tough conversations. Gosh, yes. Uh, being overly bold and, and insufficiently pessimistic, I think, is part of the answer to that. <laughs> I, I come from the UK, as, as folks may not be totally shocked here, and I uh, married nearly 13 years ago a guy from Oklahoma which people are always shocked to hear. Yeah. They sort of say, oh, a real American. I say, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, so he, he and I met just as I was finishing a PhD in English literature and just before I was going to seminary. And we got married and I, I had always planned to stay in the UK. I felt very much like there's a huge amount of gospel work to be done in my homeland. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up marrying this guy who was very keen to move back to the US. So I had to had to trust the Lord with that and ended up uh, moving right when he finished his PhD and I finished my seminary degree. And I worked for nine years for an organization called the Veritas Forum, where a big part of my job was working with Christian professors yeah. and helping them to think about how they integrate their, their faith with their work and then also how to speak about that to a public audience in the university setting. Right. And after nine years of doing that, I felt like I had a roadmap, really, of where the conversation is at on a whole bunch of different fronts, because I had the pleasure of talking with some of the, the leading world experts on all sorts of issues mm -hmm. who are also serious followers of Jesus. Yeah. And I didn't want to keep that to myself. So I, I mostly wrote my first book, Running Christianity, because I wanted to, to share that with the, the world in general. Well, so you did, you did your PhD in English literature, you said, at... 
was right. it at, at Cambridge? It was at Cambridge. And is that, I, I mixed it up. So is that where you met your husband or that was after you guys got married? Yeah, we, we met right at the end of my time at Cambridge. Yeah. And then you went back and then you did a seminary degree or? I was already on track to go to seminary in London when I met Brian. Okay. And so we started dating about two weeks before I moved to London and then had a extremely long distance relationship all the way from London to Cambridge, which was about, we didn't have cars. So on the train, it was about two hours. Okay. You know, feel, feel for us. And then you did a seminary degree at, did you go to Gordon, Gordon Conwell or? No, in London at Oak Hill College. Oh, um, you did? Okay. Uh, Got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how did you end up at, in? because right now you're in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The, um, well, I'm not going to, yeah. The other Cambridge. <laughs> the, the other Cambridge, Cambridge yes. yeah, yeah. I have a preference for Cambridge in the UK. I almost called it the real Cambridge, but that'd be insulting to the whole city, which I don't want to do. So, um, so it would also be true, you know, um, so yeah, what brought you to Cambridge, Massachusetts then? Brian, my husband was very keen to move to the U S and I got a job with the Veritas forum in Cambridge and he felt like it was the kind of area where he could get a job as well. So we moved here. Oh, okay. Oh, so it was a Veritas. Okay. That makes sense. I, okay. Um, so I want to dive into your, your, is it your first book confronting Christianity? That's right. Okay. And you walk through kind of the, basically the biggest challenges to the Christian faith and address them in a wins- winsome, very intellectually um, sound and careful way, but in a way that's really easy to understand. Can you walk through, maybe not all 10, but what are, what are some of those big questions facing Christianity that you had to wrestle with in that book? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. People sometimes ask me, how did I pick the 12 that I picked? Yeah. And I tend to say, well, I just sat down one day and I thought, hey, what what are the big issues? Um, and questions around diversity and racism, questions around gender and sexuality, questions around violence and, and crusades. How can you say that there is only one true religion? Isn't that mm-hmm. uh, intolerant and, and small minded? Questions around suffering, questions around hell and heaven. Uh, and questions about science and the Bible. So they, those were some of the ones that just immediately came to mind as I sat down and as I wrote down these these 12. And then since then, as I've spoken to various audiences, I've sometimes asked like, hey, tell me the questions that you guys are being asked by your non-Christian friends. And people will shout out and ask, it, it will almost inevitably map onto at least you know one of the questions okay. out of the 12. So it, it wasn't actually especially hard to, to narrow down to what those were. Okay. Um, and then, as, as I mentioned, I had the, the opportunity to leverage some of the insights and even the stories as well, because there are some extraordinary faith stories of brothers and sisters who are now professors in major world-class secular universities yeah. who came to faith when they were teenagers or when they were in college or when they were already professors mm-hmm. and trying to, to take both their stories and their research and insights and, and map it onto to some of the big questions. Um, one of the, Honestly, one of the more surprising features or, or pieces that, I, that I've been able to draw out was that the growing body of evidence that being actively religious, especially going to church every week, is measurably good for your mental and physical health. Huh. I think there are a lot of people who think that, you know, religion in general and probably Christianity in particular is, you know, not something you should inflict on your children, for example. But over at Harvard uh, School of Public Health, not far from where, where I live now, study after study is being done to show that, in fact, you know, whether or not belief in God is, happens to be true, active religious participation, and not just sort of general spirituality, but like showing up to church every week, showing mm-hmm. up or showing up to you know synagogue or you know another religious practice, but like a regular engagement in religious community, is mm-hmm. reduces your likelihood of suicide and depression. Um, drug abuse, all of these things, which you know we we struggle with as a society. Actually, yeah, going to church is, is a big piece of how we can improve on those fronts. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I read a study a while back on the I forget the title, like the happiness of LGBT people, and it was a secular study. Didn't seem to have. Well, I mean, every study typically has some kind of axe to grind, but uh, to their own surprise, they said that. Re- LGBT people who are religious marked higher on the happiness scale than those who weren't. And they had this 
statement kind of tucked away at the end of the study saying it didn't matter whether the religious environment was more liberal or more conservative. Because you would think, okay, well, a hyper-progressive religious environment, obviously LGBT people would be, be happy there, happier there. But it was they said it, we, they were shocked that mm. whether conservative or progressive, it was, it was the same thing. And that's, that's what LGBT people, which we, we all know have, have a, you know, it's been a, not the best relationship between um, the church and the LGBT community, uh, g- generally speaking. But, um, you know, what's interesting about your book is in, in the classic kind of defending the faith kind of books, um, they deal more with just kind of existence of God type questions or more in, like philosophical questions. But you're, you deal a lot with some of the ethical barriers that some people have to the Christian faith. Is that, have you seen that? I mean, obviously that's intentional. Is that where a big shift has been and how we had argued Christianity maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago versus now the the questions that people have are more ethical in nature? Yeah, I think so. And it's even, it was interesting when, when Brian and I first met again, he was raised in Oklahoma in a a very different cultural and sort of religiously cultural context. I was raised in in London Mm -hmm. and he said that growing up, even if your friends didn't go to church themselves, they, they respected the fact that you did. It was sort of seen as a moral plus yeah. to be an active Christian. And people might feel a little bit sheepish about the fact that they weren't. Yeah. Whereas growing <laughs> up in, in London, and certainly I think this is more the case you know, where I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts now, identifying as Christian and especially identifying as any form of evangelical Christian is associated with a lot of moral negatives. Right. So I think I think you're right that rather than the first question out of a non-Christian friend's mouth being, well, how can I believe in the resurrection? We'd love that to be the first question, quite frankly. <laughs> Usually it is, how, how can Christians be so racist? Right. Or how can Christians be so uh, offensive and, and derogatory and unloving toward LGBT people? Like the, the, actually, the first place that people's minds go is a moral place. Yeah. And one of the things that I was trying to do in, in the book, Confronting Christianity, was to say, rather than immediately go to you, okay, this is why I think you're wrong. I actually want to start with, like, this is why I think you're right. I, I think, for example, when it comes to race, I, I, I think we can strongly affirm mm-hmm. our, our non-Christian friends' objection to the, the history of you know, white Christian racism, for example. I, I think we too should be deeply grieved about that. But I think that actually... If we look more closely at that issue, then we find that, firstly, the scriptures are the, the, the basis for believing that all human beings are, are inherently sort of morally equally valuable, regardless of their, their race or cultural, ethnic heritage or, or nationality. Um, and it's also it's the place where we can go to find out where, that racism is truly wrong rather than just, mm. you know, my preference versus yours. Mm. And then if we look sort of around us sociologically at the global church, we find that Christianity, far from being a, you know, just a, a white-centered Western religion, mm-hmm. is actually the most diverse belief system in the world, like both mm-hmm. the largest and the most racially, culturally, nationally diverse belief system in the world. So if you care about diversity, which, you know, I, I hope we do, and, and I think our non-Christian friends do as well, then actually Christianity is the, the best place to go rather than this being a big defeat for the Christian faith. I, you know, I, that's such an obvious point that I haven't heard people make very often that of all the, I'm just scanning my brain right now of all of the, of all of the religions, Christianity is by far the most ethnically diverse, right? I mean, that's, is, that's not, yeah. it's just facts. Those yeah. are just facts. It's, an, it's not an argument. It's an observation. right? No, I mean, it's true. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a lot that we can do the way that I try to structure the, the chapters in my book is to actually start with why this objection is so important and actually a good one. Mm-hmm. And then look at like, here's the evidence that it doesn't depend on whether you're a Christian or an atheist. We're looking at the same evidence here. So for example, mm-hmm. the diversity of the ethnic diversity of the, the global church. And then to, to look from there, at, okay, what does the Bible say about these things? And, and how does, how is that reflected or not reflected in, in what we're seeing right. around us today? So, so to kind of start with places of agreement right. and, and maybe challenge, but challenge that comes from, and not me saying, well, I'm a Christian and I believe this, actually to start with saying, hey, whether we're a Christian, you're a Christian or not, let's look at the mental and physical health benefits of religious participation, or let's look at the diversity of the global church, let's mm-hmm. look at the, you know, the fact that, that kids raised in, in religious in, environments are um, less vulnerable to, to the big kind of risks of, mm-hmm. um, of teenage years at the moment, et cetera, et cetera. So just sort of build that common ground mm-hmm. 
on the way to saying, hey, this is why I actually think Jesus, rather than being kind of a relic of the ancient world, is actually the, the best hope we have in the modern world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Christianity, as you said, offers, you know, our objective authority, God's word, contains in its most fun, foundational in the, in the most foundational way right there in Genesis one and shot all the way through scripture is the, is the basis for why we would say racism, mm. misogyny, slavery, and all these things are, are wrong. And, and absolutely um, people who claim that authority have not lived up to it. Some of them have been d- done horrible things. Um, is it? So I don't even know if this is good to acknowledge because sometimes it could be taken the wrong way, but you look at, the the church's participation in things like slavery, racism, ethnocentrism, is it good? Or do you acknowledge in your book that so does everybody? So did everybody else? Kind of like it's it's not like it's like a it's not like Christians are uniquely have been racist and 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 contributed to slavery and stuff like that's that was they simply participated in what was just common throughout the world and Christianity in many circles were the ones to step up and say, Hey, this is actually wrong. We need to not do this. Is that, is that worth bringing up or is that, I mean, well, here's the thing. One of the great tragedy, I mean, there are so many, but one of the great tragedies of, of more recent slavery, uh, the, the sort that we saw, we saw practiced in the history of America is that whereas the, the world into which Jesus was born was a world in which slavery was absolutely normal. Like nobody would have questioned that it was any in any sense problematic. And I, I think the New Testament actually radically challenges the practice of slavery, not least in, in Paul's letter um, to Philemon, where he he takes a, a runaway slave and mm-hmm. says to Philemon, I'm sending him back to you. I want you to receive him as a brother. Yeah. Um, he is my very heart. Like That's how I feel about him. And in fact, you should receive him like you would receive me, your your most respected mentor. Like the, the ways in which Paul actually subverts the kind of master-slave relationship with the New Testament are extraordinary. And it, even never mind the fact that Jesus, like the ways that Jesus subverts it. Right. So, so first century, we have a world where slavery is completely pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, the early centuries, we we have a, a particular um, attraction of, of enslaved people to Christianity. I mean, it was one of the, the ways that Christians mocked was that they were seeming to attract only women, children, and slaves. Like the stupid, the, the uneducated, credulous people, right. women, slaves, and children. Huh. And it, it wasn't only true, but it was also substantially true that, that these demographics were, were very attracted to Christianity. You then see um, through to about sort of the 13th century when Thomas Aquinas like specifically condemned slavery as sinful. You hmm. see Christianity working its way through Europe and you see the practice of slavery actually being abolished. Uh, we, you see the Pope officially condemning slavery. So when the transatlantic slave trade started to happen, this was the, the resurrection, to use a sort of wasted term, of something that Christianity had eradicated in the Western world. Huh, like, wow. a- actually, the, the Christians of that day knew much better. It, it, it wasn't true. I mean, it, it was true to say that this is something that was practiced in other places as well, but it wasn't true to say like this was the, you know, the abolitionists William Balfour's, et cetera, you know, in, in my country, were the first Christians to realize, wait a minute, this is radically wrong. That actually had been worked out a long time ago. So anyway, that that is heartbreaking to me. Um, so, that, so, what, so the sorry. abolitionists were tapping into a, a deeper Christian history of being against slavery. It was not like they just woke up one day out of nowhere and said, this is not the Christian thing to do. They were going back to the very roots of Christianity, you're saying. Yeah, and you know, you only have to read your New Testament to see black Christians on literal day one of the church, uh, when the spirits pulled out at Pentecost, and you yeah. see people from countries including um, Ethiopia and Libya being right. among the three thousand who came to Christ that day. You know, we have of course the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts chapter eight. I mean, the 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 racial um, the the call to to racial uh, love and equality in the New Testament is completely mm-hmm. unmistakable. But I think the reason that we have sometimes mistaken it mm-hmm. is because the racial and cultural barriers of, of our day and of, of you know, recent centuries have been different from those yeah. the first century. So we don't always hear it as clearly as, as we should have done. Right, right. And at the same time, you're right. If, if we say, okay, well, what's the alternative? I think it's, it's very easy 
And it's almost sort of baked in um, from the, the Declaration of Independence onwards. You know, if we say we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. Uh-huh. That's actually not a self-evident truth at all. That's a specifically biblical claim. And a, a lot of people today think that you can divorce the idea of human equality and love across racial difference and equal value of men and women and care of for the poor, et cetera, et cetera, from Christianity. Mm-hmm. But actually, you can't. That is, the, it is the philosophical building blocks for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it fascinating. You know, folks like you all know Harari, who's an Israeli historian and an atheist, who wrote a best-selling book, *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind*, a few years ago. It's you know, right. sold millions of copies worldwide. And he's very clear about the fact. He said, um, you know, Homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as chimpanzees, hyenas, and spiders have no natural rights. And he says Amer- the Americans got the idea of human equality from Christianity, but huh. what does it even mean to say that humans are equal? if there is no God who made human beings in his image, you know, he says human rights are figments of our fertile imagination. <laughs> so you're kind of, you're comparing what Christianity offers. You know, people think they're comparing it to a perfectly coherent secular worldview that does all the same work as Christianity, mm. except without to believe in, you know, crazy things like being raised from the dead. Actually, mm. you're comparing Christianity to a complete moral abyss. <laughs> Do you say that in the, in the book? That- uh, do you know, I haven't read Sapiens when I read when I wrote Companion Christianity, but I, I do quote Sapiens in both of my more recent books okay. in the last few months. Y- your point about Aquinas, I I um I made that claim publicly and somebody challenged me on that and said that's actually not true. Aquinas did not think it was sinful. He had a kind of more complex view. Do you are you aware of that? I mean I'm not a Aquinas scholar, I just I've always heard, not always, as if this is like <laughs> everywhere in pop culture, but like I've I've heard people looked into it that he was kind of opposed to slavery, but then some people say no, it's more complicated. Are you aware of that debate? Or, yeah, my, my rule of thumb is I am I'm an actual expert on almost nothing. <laughs> uh, te- technically, I'm an expert on prisons and Shakespeare because that's what I did my PhD on, but it was a long time ago. Oh, so what I always do is I, I quote from and base what I'm saying on actual experts. Okay. Um, so I believe that section of my book, I was drawing from Kyle. Uh, his name is Kyle, Kyle Harper. Kyle, Kyle Harper? Harper? Hi, thank, thank you, Harper. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure it was from him. I need to. Re- I read his book on sexuality, um, on um, from shame to sin, where he deals with like the early church's sexual ethic. It's a. It's one of my top five recommended books. I mean, it's really academic, and and, um, but I know he originally was kind of an expert in kind of understanding slavery in in the ancient world. So I need to. I need to check that out. He he's a great scholar. Um. Um. Uh, okay, so that, that's the race. I mean, I'm not going to hit all 12, 12, right? There's 12? Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I said 10 earlier. Um, what are some other, what are like some other big ones that that come up that you would say these are the most frequently, the kind of ethical hangups? Is it, well, is it the problem of evil? Is it, is it sexual ethics? Is it, um, yeah, what else? What else do we need to wrestle with? <laughs> yeah, I think it's absolutely sexual ethics. And, okay. you know, probably folks listening to your podcast have, have heard plenty on, on the subject from, from people more expert than me, including yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's the, the huge ethical, well, that, that and race are the huge ethical questions or yeah. challenges of our day. Uh, I think that when it comes to sexuality, we as Christians have tended to have a, an impoverished view mm-hmm. of what the Bible is saying, including about same sex relationships. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like to sometimes say kind of controversially is that people will often say the Bible condemns same-sex relationships, but I actually think the Bible commands same-sex relationships at a level of intimacy that we seldom reach. Paul, um, as I mentioned earlier, he calls Onesimus his very heart. Mm -hmm. He says he was among the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with her children. And how awkward would you feel saying to a male friend Hmm. um, that he was your very heart? Or, or saying to a group of people you'd been discipling that you, you've been among them like a nursing mother. <laughs> uh, he, he talks about Christians as being you know, one body, as being knit together in love, as being comrades in arms, like all these in, intensely yeah. intimate things that he says about us and that aren't, aren't exclusive to sort of same-sex friendship, but are generally kind of best experienced in, in same-sex mm-hmm. friendship. We hear Jesus saying, Greater love has no one than this, and that he laid down his life for his friends. 
And I think often in, in, in Christian culture, hmm. we elevate marriage so much, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful, I mean, Christian marriage is a beautiful thing and a picture of Jesus' love for his church, but we elevate it at the expense of singleness mm-hmm. rather than at the expense of different forms of kind of sexual mm-hmm. expression, whether it's, you know, serial monogamy or cohabitation or prom- promiscuity or whatever it is. And so we've lost sight of the fact that we are actually the people who believe we actually believe more in non-traditional family, for example, than than our LGBT friends do. Hey, we believe in in real, intimate, family-like love between people who aren't genetically related to each other, between mm-hmm. people who aren't in, in sort of traditional marriage context. We believe this because we're Christians. Yeah. And as with so many other areas, you know, for example, including the, the race questions that we were just talking about, I think what what the Bible has to offer us is so much better. Mm-hmm. than the things that, that we we grasp at but we tend to forget those and it, it's almost like i don't know if you remember before the days when we if you want to take a photo you pick up your iphone and just sort of take a snap when you actually had to have a camera and you had to to take photos on your film then take it to the store to get the film developed and then it would come back and you'd have the, the prints but you'd also have these little black and white negatives and if you took that little black and white negative, you could hold it up to the light and you could just about make out the picture. Yeah. But it's like a little monochrome thing. It wasn't the real thing. And we've we've held on to Christian marriage as if it was the real thing. Mm-hmm. And we've held, we've only focused on the, the sort of boundaries that the Bible gives us around sex, which are very real. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen the beautiful picture of Jesus' love for his church. Yeah. We haven't seen the picture that Jesus gives us of how different kinds of relationship, you know, parent, child, husband, wife, friend, friend, how these all give us different glimpses of Jesus' love for us. Yeah. So I, I think I think we need to reclaim a, a much more rich and holistic vision of Christian community because if, if we have in fact organized our churches to where you're either married with children, in which case you fit in just fine, mm-hmm. or you're not, in which case you're kind of always on the edges – then of course we're creating a world in which you know people who are single, I you know for, because they're exclusively same-sex attracted, or, mm-hmm. or simply because they, um, you know maybe they long for marriage, they haven't found a, a husband or wife, maybe they they don't long for marriage, and but there's, there's, we haven't created space yeah. for the kind of people that we see all over the New Testament. Yeah, or David uh, reminds me of David after Jonathan died, right? <laughs> Your love to me was better than the love of women. <laughs> mm. And and we, you know, modern day people say, well, he must be gay. And it's like, well, no, you, you're, <laughs> first of all, there's no evidence for that. Second of all, uh, you don't understand the depth of intimacy that same-sex non-erotic relationships w- were in the ancient world. Like even in, in some of the, as I'm sure you know, I mean, some of the, the Greek... Um, some of the philosophers and, 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 and Greek leaders and everything, I mean, they, they prioritized the kind of friendships like marriage and to a fault was probably just more functional. Like they would, but, but their, their true intimacy wasn't actually with their spouse. It was with their, yeah. their friends. And I, I just, I, I, it just, it does seem Rebecca that, that Christian, that, that standard evangelical Christianity for the last several decades, maybe longer, has basically adopted a very secular view of marriage and sexuality, but we add a little footnote saying, wait until you're married. And no, we, I guess we define marriage between a man and woman without having a more robust, holistic view of the function of the calling of marriage within the kingdom of God. Um, so that like, as you said, I mean, um, we often think like if you're not married, then something's wrong or like, Oh, you can't, you can't really flourish and succeed as a human unless you're married and having lots of great marital sex. And if you don't get that, then you haven't really arrived. What we've done that I think is really like hurt, like now it's kind of come back. It's kind of blowback that's come back on us that I often hear people in more, in a more progressive camp saying, well, wait a minute, if you deny gay people, you know, the, the right to marry who they desire and express their sexuality, then they're not going to, that, that's going to be harmful. They're not going to be able to function. It's like all they're doing is taking, it's kind of like um, a progressive version of purity culture, if I could put it like that, um, because it's, it's, it's maintaining this still, this kind of like idolatry of marriage and sexual expression as something that humans need to be doing and engaging in for them to flourish. And if you deny them that right, like you are sending right. them yeah. 
into a harmful state. And it's like, it just sounds like purity culture all over again, you know? Um, so it's really unfortunate. So anyway, all, all that is <laughs> a long way of me saying, I, I really resonate with what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I think just to, to go back for a minute to the, the place of friendship in the ancient world, honestly, I think a lot of the, the reason that opposite sex relationships, especially marriage were not prized as they hopefully are within Christian circles in the ancient world. It was, was sheer misogyny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I don't think that's that's what any of us want to to get back to. But I think the basis today for love between believers of of either sex is shared mission, mm. which is the most beautiful and intimate thing. Uh, I, I had um, had the pleasure of interviewing a woman a few months ago uh, in the process of writing my my latest book, The Secular Creed, because uh, one of the questions that often comes up today is, well, you know, what about gay people who are already married when they become Christians. Yeah. Like we know that the Bible's against divorce. So, uh, you know, what if they have children? Like clearly mm-hmm. all sorts of complicated things. And I was talking with this woman who has this extraordinary story of she'd actually been divorced in the first instance, you know, had, had children with her husband who, you know, been chronically unfaithful to her, ended up getting divorced, ended up in a relationship with another woman with whom she had a, a child. Uh, and then both of them ended up becoming Christians mm-hmm. And moving in with her son-in-law, who's a pastor, and her, her daughter and their kids with their child, you know, so to start to create this expansive family where they could not be a couple, but still both be very involved in their, their daughter's life. And this woman said that now she and her former partner mm-hmm. feel closer to each other as sisters in Christ than they ever felt as lovers. And that to me, I mean, especially to me as someone who's, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember, I've been attracted to women as long as I can remember. Like if I were not a Christian, I think I'd very likely be married to a woman, woman rather than to a man. But that to me is just the most beautiful and, hmm. and precious thing to think, no, God is never trying to rob us of something good when hmm. he says no to our desires. Hmm. He's actually ultimately always trying to give us something better. Yeah. And, and there'll be an extent to which that something better will be not never fully realized until the new creation but we actually also get glimpses of that something something better here and now yeah did did i hear you say that you've been you're attracted to women yeah i i honestly didn't even know that about your story <laughs> <laughs> yeah well so here's the other reason that i wrote confronting christianity there was this sort of the professor intellectual side of things yeah and then there was also the fact that you know when gay marriage was legalized across the states in in 2015 i i felt a profound sense of wanting to be a little voice in this conversation mm-hmm. because it seemed to me that the church, like men, many churches were doing a really poor job. Um, I, I, the, the two things that I primarily saw were, were either churches that were kind of um, buying into the, the idea that actually we are, um, you know, robbing and uh, oppressing um, same-sex attracted people if we say you know, to, to Christians that, that you can only be married to somebody of the, the opposite mm-hmm. sex. Um, and I, I think often it was people kind of, I'd have conversation with people where they, they'd grown up um, in, in the church and then they'd say, well, you know, I used to think that gay marriage was wrong. And then, you know, I met a really nice guy at, 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 through work who's mm-hmm. he's gay and he seems to have a really great relationship with his partner and, you know, he's a really generous, friendly, mm-hmm. um, caring person. Right. And so now I'm not sure. And I'm thinking, okay, if, if that's what's challenging you, then you weren't brought up with biblical sexual ethics. You were brought up with homophobia, actually. You are brought up to expect that every gay person was somehow sort of generally morally worse than every heterosexual person. So, you know, all, all sorts of, all sorts of ways that I think the church meaningfully, you know, does need to, to, to repent but not repent and throw out biblical sexual ethics, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the bathwater. So that was, you know, one kind of church that was was wanting to change what the Bible very, very clearly says. Mm-hmm. And the other kind of church that was wanting to just double down on really a culture wars mentality of saying, you know, there's a them and us of the LGBT community mm-hmm. versus Christians. And this is, you know, about us. Um, yeah, really just doubling down on what, frankly, often had a, a, a sort of swirl of homophobia in, in mm-hmm. the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, at that point I was wanting to to contribute my little sort of tiny voice of, of my own experience to the conversation. But at that point I wasn't even talking to any of my closest friends, mm-hmm. let alone, you know, was I really ready to 
talk about this in public or, or you know, write a book um, talking about it. But did some of that that work over the few years between between that moment and, and my book coming out. And hmm. yeah, because I, I think you know, the kind of work that you're doing, it, amongst other things, helping um, connect people with folks who, who yeah. have always experienced same-sex sex attraction, who are speaking as serious Christians, who are upholding biblical sexual ethics. Mm-hmm. But they were doing so from a perspective of deep and genuine empathy, not mm-hmm. from, you know, not somebody who can be dismissed as right. a homophobic bigot who just doesn't get it. Right. Totally. It's, it's so funny. Cause it, it I, I almost didn't even, because in, in my world, I, if I feel like I've been around, it's, it's more odd for me to be around somebody who's straight. So it's, it's just so <laughs> for somebody, it might be like, Whoa, like you're all excited to interview a straight. Person. No, for no. Yeah. For, yeah. I'm like, can I, Oh no, another same sex attraction. No. <laughs> no, for me, it's like, I didn't even notice it when he said it in past. I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Oh yeah. I, didn't, I guess I didn't know that about Rebecca, but yeah, it's so funny. For me, it's just another Tuesday. But <laughs> um, I want to talk about your newest book because, I mean, this is – wow. You, um, I, We have a common bond here, I guess, because people often tell me, like, how come you always seem to address the controversial issues? And I'm like, I don't even – I just like interesting topics, and I want to understand them, and they have to be – some of the most interesting ones seem to happen to be controversial uh, but man, so this newest book is probably even more controversial than uh, your first book. So uh, tell us about the secular creed, what what it is about, and then maybe we can dive into one or two or three or all of the topics that you wrestle with. Sure. Yeah. In some ways, it, so confronting Christianity was twelve questions. The I wrote a teen version called Ten Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, which is ten questions, just really. Mm-hmm. Boiling down, it's 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 come covering very similar ground, but but boiling it down for a younger audience. Mm-hmm. And then this um, this most recent book, Secular Creed, is looking at five issues. One day I'll write a book that doesn't have a number in the title. <laughs> um, so the the premise of this book is to look at the yard signs that in the last couple of years have been springing up, at least in my neighbourhood, and you know, probably in yours as well. That say they begin something like this. In this house, we believe that Black Lives Matter, love is love, women's rights is human rights, and then usually there are various other candidates for the other couple of claims. So it could be um, no human is illegal, or diversity makes us stronger, or kindness is everything, or science is real. Like there's a sort of yeah. seems to be a combination of other ideas, but usually some version of those first three: Black Lives Matter, love is love, women's rights, human rights, uh, appear on this sign. Mm-hmm. And so the my book, The Secular Creed, is looking at that sign. It's the first book I've actually written that's sort of primarily for Christians rather than primarily directly a Christian addressed to non-Christians. And what I'm trying to look at is we tend to be presented with a sign like this as if it's like an all-or-nothing package deal. Either you take the sign and you hammer it into your yard or you kind of take your mallet out and try and knock it down at other people's yards, at least sort of ideologically speaking. It's you're, you're in or you're out. And the what I'm trying to do in that book is to look at those claims and, and a couple of other related ones and to say, okay, what do we as Christians strongly affirm about this? Mm-hmm. And where do we as Christians strongly uh, depart from, from what's intended by, um, by these, these various claims? And then to look at like the, what's the secular alternative. So I, what I'm arguing is that the, the ground into which these these yard signs are sort of hammered ideologically actually is Christian ground, hmm. even on the statements with which we might most disagree, because the, the idea of human equality, the idea that the, the strong shouldn't be able to oppress the weak and that the historically oppressed and marginalized should actually be championed rather than crushed. Like all of these come to us from Christianity. None of them are in fact sort of self-evident claims. So I want to say the ground in which these these yard signs are planted is is ultimately Christian ground. Mm-hmm. But also that as Christians, the important ways in which we have failed, especially on the first claim that Black Lives Matter, and I speak as a you know white evangelical on this on this issue, means that in fact the the way that we need to move forward here, in in our own hearts and in our communities and in our conversations with non-Christian friends, is actually first and foremost to repent, hmm. and that that's a step forward and it's not a step back. Because I think that there's a, there's a strong tendency that people have, again, because they see all these ideas sort of grouped together. They think that this is a, an all or nothing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we can both, 
we need to measure all of these all of these statements according to what the scripture says and and where on reading the scriptures we find that our tribe has been wrong we need to repent mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just as much as we need to call our friends to repentance mm-hmm. um, and faith in jesus we also need to be mm-hmm. repenting believing and i think that's yeah especially true with the black lives matter claim um yeah. which is something that it's purely our white christian sin actually that's kind of got us into the place that we're in today with, and, with and one of the most embarrassing moves i see from christians regardless of blm movement what it stands for all this like let's just set that aside for a second if if you're a christian leader church whatever and you kind of come out of the woodwork in the race conversation just to address why Black Lives Matter, the movement is wrong, and you haven't even cared about right. the race conversation up until then, you probably won't after. You just want to refute a claim. That is yeah. a st- that is so bad. <laughs> it's just so bad. Like th- there's such a rich history in the Bible, in as you as we said earlier, within Christianity, of Christianity being a multi-ethnic um kingdom and we have not always done that well especially in in the u.s um and to be silent on that on racial reconciliation until blm comes up and then you step out and refute it and go back into your you know monochromatic uh mono what's the word is that it yeah yeah okay uh community like that's just it's so embarrassing so just stop like and and there, there could be critiques on the blm movement whatever like we can have that conversation but let's not just have that conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I honestly, one of the the greatest ironies at the moment, which is also the place where I have a lot of hope, really, is that the the people who have suffered most from white Christian sin on these issues are actually Bible believing Christians themselves. Yeah. So we, I mean, it, hmm. it's extraordinary that the way that God called um, enslaved black people to Himself the time of the great great awakening and, and following you know the the birthing of the black church the reality that today black americans are substantially more likely to identify as christian than their white peers to mm-hmm. go to church every week to read their bible to pray mm-hmm. to hold core evangelical beliefs mm-hmm. to not affirm lgbt identities actually like i, I mean mm-hmm. we don't we don't talk about that because it's so like that would be so problematic in the minds of of you know <laughs> many of my liberal friends um <laughs> I mean, it's one of one of the things that I, I sometimes sort of provocatively like to say as well is, you know, let's talk about intersectionality for a minute, right? So people, my non-Christian friends would say, we really need to listen to black women. Mm-hmm. I would say, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. But you know what? If you listen to black women in America, you'll hear a lot of people telling you to repent and believe in Jesus. And in fact, yeah. black women are the most likely to be Christian of anybody in America and not, and not to be progressive, sort of more liberal Christians actually – those are the voices that tend to be sort of platformed. Mm-hmm. But actually the the majority of black Christians in America are like quite theologically conservative. Right. Yeah. And, and I think if both, you know, white evangelicals like me and our sort of secular progressive friends like truly listened yeah. to black women in America, we would be having a very different conversation. Well, I don't. Yeah. And, when that's a talking point from, for lack of better terms, more progressive people, I kind of call BS on that a little bit. It's like, we need to listen to black women. It's like, obviously, yeah. Um, so what about Candace Owen? Oh, not her. I don't like what she says. Okay, so it's not black women. It's black women with a certain viewpoint that you want to listen to because, you know, like... Yeah, honestly, I, I, I understand the not Candace Owen's response, to be brutally honest. I think it's easy and... Uh, <laughs> Here I'm going in all the difficult places. I think it's very easy for white evangelicals to find the the very small handful of, yeah. of um, black, you know, prominent black people who will be saying the things that will affirm what they already think, um, yeah. and ignore the large majority of our brothers and sisters of color who are saying very different yeah. things. So I think I don't disagree with your your call of BS holistically. Yeah, but I think in, it, there are certain instances where I'm like, yeah, we really are kind of anyone wanting to listen to um, to a very tiny minority of yeah. this demographic. I guess my point is like there's, we have, I think, intertwined ideological agreement into the race conversation, I think, and sometimes, not not just the race conversation, the, the yeah. broader social justice kind of conversation so that, yeah, we, we have almost, yeah. Well, it, you know, it's, 
it's what you know Joe Biden's kind of slip up I think he was hammered a little too hard I think he was kind of joking but like when he told Charlemagne de God um, a black podcaster super popular you know if, if this is before the election like if well if you don't if you don't vote for me then you ain't black you know as if like being black means you must be a Democrat or on a certain side of a certain right. issue or whatever without acknowledging the the vast diversity of independent um, intellectually sound uh, opinions within a certain community. And this is where I do think while I think the right, and I don't get mixed up in the political stuff. I, I kind of sit back as an observer. Like it's kind of interesting and entertaining all, all at the same time. But um, yeah, I do think the thing, you know, identity politics can, or, or, I mean, if call it what you want. I mean, by assuming certain things about every individual that happens to participate in a certain demographic based on their socioeconomic status or gender, their race, whatever. Um, I, so, I just think that that's, that's, it's a res it's a resurrecting what conservatives used to do all the time and of stereotyping people, right? I mean, it's what I face in the LGBT conversation. When you say gay or lesbian trans, like everybody has a stereotype of what that individual must be. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, there's a wide diversity of opinions within LGBT community because there's a wide diversity of viewpoints within any kind of group of people. Um, anyway, I'll, whenever somebody says, yeah, listen to this voice or this voice and, and they just have a kind of one size fits all of what that yeah. voice Sorry. must say. And if somebody steps outside of that, like, Oh no, not that person. No, not that person. It's like, so we just want to hear voices of people that agree with us at the end of the day, regardless of skin right. color. Right. You know, and um, I think that's something that we're all vulnerable to. And all of us probably have to work hard to yeah. not buy into um, whatever. Like, even, even if we're right, I think it's yeah. important to understand. And, and I, I think, you know, especially as you say, when it comes to um, LGBT folk and, and even most especially, I think, when it comes to people who identify as transgender, mm -hmm. that it's very easy to start painting with a broad brush on the basis of, you know, very limited um, right. understanding of conversations. And um, yeah. and I think I, I appreciate the ways that you don't do that. And I, yeah. I try to not do that as well. I want to clarify too. I'm not really a Candace Owens fan. I just threw that out as an example. I assume people know that, but if I'd be like, no, maybe they don't. Maybe they're like, I'm trying to, cause I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I, I, um, I think she's sharp and, and it's, she's interesting. She's interesting and entertaining to listen to, but she's so political. It drives me crazy. So, Anyway, I, <laughs> um, what, what are some other, um, yeah, what are the other, so, uh, yeah, go through the, the list of slogans you deal with again in the secular creed and let's pick mm. another, let's pick another one to wrestle with. Sure. Yeah. So the, the chapters are, um, number one, black lives matter. Number two, love is love. Number three, the gay rights movement is the new civil rights movement. Okay. Number four, um, so. women's rights are human rights. And number five, transgender women are women. Women's rights are human rights. Obviously. Like, so what's going on there? Like, I, I, I've heard that slogan, but what's the, <laughs> yeah, let's get underneath that idea. And how do you Yeah, it? no, I'd love to. Yeah. So, so that is code for uh, abortion rights. Okay. Uh, in case that's not evident to, <laughs> to folks. That today the right to abortion is seen as the central plank of women's rights. And okay. um, I, what I, what I argue in the book is I actually think the central plank of women's rights is not abortion. It's the cross. Mm. And the, in fact, the, the idea of the abortion, it actually goes ag against women's rights um, in, in some really fundamental ways, not least because the basis for us believing that men and women are, are equal, um, which again is a Christian idea. It is not something that was self-evident in the history of the world. In the Greco-Roman Empire, baby girls were frequently abandoned because they were girls and they were simply less valuable in that society. Mm -hmm. We've seen the same thing actually in China where we, you know, disproportionate number of, of baby girls aborted. Um, same in India, disproportionate number of baby girls aborted leading to a significant gender imbalance in both of those mm -hmm. countries. It is, is not at all a self-evident truth throughout history or across culture that women are equally valuable to men. That is a mm. truth brought to us by Christianity. And Jesus' treatment of women, if, if we could see it with, with first century eyes, we would be 
utterly shocked by the way that Jesus interacts with women and the ways that he validates mm. women and lifts women up and relates to women in, in, in love and friendship and care, um, including and especially the women he should have had least to do with. You know, mm. think of the Samaritan woman at the well who sexually immoral. I mean, she's a Samaritan, which makes her a member of the hated mm. ethnic group anyway for Jews. And she's a woman. And she's a sexually immoral woman. She's like literally the last person that Jesus should have been associated with. And yet he has his longest recorded private conversation with her. And in John's gospel, she's the first person to reveals himself as the Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, or you look at how he relates to the woman who, who, the sort of sinful woman of the city who comes and weeps on his feet and how he holds her up as a moral example to the self-righteous Pharisee. Mm-hmm. Um, or how he relates to Mary and Martha, who, who I, like that relationship, I just... John 11 and Jesus raising of Lazarus mm. is so beautiful to me. It's the basis for my chapter on suffering. Um, mm. But one of the things that be- that's beautiful is the fact that the, the ways in which he relates to, to Martha and, and, and Mary in that conversation. Um, and so you see, historically, you see uh, the equality of men and women being something that's kind of brought to us by, by Christianity. You, you also see the fact that there have always been more Christian women in the church mm-hmm. than men. Um, and that was true, uh, as far as we can tell, in the, the early church. It's true today in, in the Western church. It's true in the church in China quite substantially, which is one of the mm-hmm. most rapidly growing churches in the world. That will have, I think China's going to have more Christians than America by 2030 and could be a majority Christian country, some are experts think, by 2060. So, you know, wherever you want to look, there are more Christian women than men. And you sort of have to ask, why, why is this? Um I think it's a whole number of reasons, but it's not least that actually Christian sexual ethics massively protects women. And if you think about the the in the Greco-Roman world, like the idea that a man would have to be faithful to just his wife mm-hmm. would have been laughable. I mean, of course, a man, and especially a free man, he it's fine for him to sleep with other women. It was fine for him to sleep with other men, so long as he was the, the penetrated, not the penetrated. Mm-hmm. It's fine for him to sexually, um, you know, use his slaves, male or female. The idea that that uh, the the wife is actually um, not to be kind of exploited or marginalised, but in fact to be sort of held as precious and sacrificed for, mm-hmm. it's completely radical and extraordinary. Um, and then we look. I mean, if you look even at at today, the the vast majority of women in the U.S. who are having abortions mm-hmm. are not doing so because they're living their you know emancipated dream. Mm-hmm. They're doing so because they're poor and they've been abandoned. And that's very much the same you know, theme that we see running through history. Women who um, you know, are pregnant by men to whom they're not married and uh, are left um, you know, sort of literally holding the baby and not, not properly supported. Um, so I think there's some really, I mean, there's, there's theological work we need to do. There's sort of thinking about our, our current context that we need to do. And at the end of the day, we need to recognize, like, if there is no God and if Christianity isn't true, then yes, the fetus in the mother's womb is just a bundle of cells. Yeah. But if there is no God and if Christianity is true, then that's all that you and I are as well. Hmm. What, what, so actually, I, mean, I was going to say, what, just, what, what is the best argument for be uh, not abortion, but like pro pro choice? Because um, I, it's a small percentage of Christians that would hold to that view that would be for abortion under certain circumstances. What's the best argument for that? Cause I, to me, it just doesn't, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of the ethical elephant in the room. Like how can anybody who claims to be for social justice, for the helpless, the marginalized, the oppressed be for abortion? Like I, to me, it just doesn't. And the little I've looked into, I'm still like, I, I don't, how are we not like, Yeah. What's the best intellectual argument that it's that it's a life but not a person? I've heard that that you can be a living, yeah. but you're not actually fully human yet, or not a person yet until you're well out of the womb or independent or have a heartbeat or something. I don't know. Well, this is the thing, and it, uh, I assume you're asking for the best sort of secular argument rather than the best Christian argument for abortion. Um, from a, a non-Christian perspective, it is truly hard to distinguish meaningfully between a baby in the womb and a baby outside the womb like actually i mean you can make you can say like at an early stage there are fewer capacities that a baby has in the womb but like really a lot of the things that you can say about a baby in the womb you can also say about a newborn baby Mm -hmm. 
And when I was first engaging these kinds of arguments when I was a teenager in the UK and sort of getting involved in pro-life um, things there, there was generally a very strong resistance from pro-choice people to saying that abortion was in any sense equivalent to infanticide. They were saying, you know, there's a very bright white line and we are not at all saying we're pro-infanticide. We're saying that this is not that. Infanticide being like killing a baby after Infanticide it's born, being right. killing a baby that's been born. Right, right. right? Which is, was typically in the ancient world how right. it was done. Right. Partly because you couldn't tell if you were having a boy or a girl until after they were born, right? <laughs> Today, increasingly, sort of leading secular philosophers are saying, you know, making, as, as you pointed out a minute ago, the kind of person being distinction and saying, sure, of course, these are human beings, like an aborted uh, a, a baby in the womb is a, is a human being. They're a member of the species Homo sapiens. But in order to be a person, you actually have to have certain kind of capacities. Mm -hmm. And those would be, you know, ability to um, to understand your own suffering, ability to um, kind of be self-reflective, et cetera, et cetera, kind of know who you are in the world. Uh, and that a newborn baby actually doesn't have those either, so a philosopher like Peter Singer, for example, in a very well-respected philosopher at Princeton University, um, he would say that if you evaluate beings according to their capacities, then a human infant is less morally valuable than an adult pig, for example. Um, and and the, the fact is, once we let go of the idea that God made all human beings in his image and he calls us into sort of a, a particular kind of relationship with him, then we are left with a world in which infanticide may be no less morally, uh, no more morally problematic than eating bacon. Like really, um, that that's that's the place that we're in. And I think, yeah. So people are trying pushing hard for this person being distinction, mm -hmm. um, but it, it's it's so deeply problematic because it's, again, as soon as you say that your value as a human and my value as a human resides in our capacities. Mm -hmm. Then we can kind of compare and contrast. Okay, like, how, like let's look at what, what are these capacities and, and who has more of them and less of them and how can we therefore evaluate these, you know, the, the worth of one human versus another. It just feels like eugenics is the next logical step, right? Where you can start eliminating yeah. humans who don't have enough capacities or something. I don't know. Like, I, it just, well, even Pete, I mean, Peter Singer, the one thing I, the little I've read of him, he seems to be quite consistent because <laughs> I think he would oh, yeah. even say yeah. that, no, in, if, if you're like, you, doesn't he say that like infanticide, if you, if you are, don't think abortion is morally wrong, then infanticide is basically, there's no real argument to say a baby who you can kill the baby, you know, an hour before it's born, but not an hour after it's born. Like that, this doesn't logically yeah, yeah. make a lot of sense. Absolutely. And he's not the only philosopher who's saying that. Really? And as you say, actually, logically, if you take Christianity out of the equation, there's no reason to not say it. Right, right. Man, it's crazy. Um, well, I've taken you up to about an hour here, Rebecca. I have so many more questions. I, I need to have you back on. But um, I, yeah, so the book is Secular, the, secu the Secular Creed. Is that what it is? The Secular Creed. So I would yes, highly recommend I have not read it yet, um, but based on what I know about you and even this conversation, I'm going to go ahead and recommend it. And then the other book uh, is Confronting Christianity. There's both like an adult version and a, and a youth version. Is the youth version for like a teenager? Is that who it's directed? I need to get that book for my kids. They would, they yeah, would read that up. Yeah. So the youth version, it's called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. Okay. And I promise you it's better than its title. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's essentially a, a, a junior version. I wrote it in a way that I would be happy for my daughter, who's uh, 10, about 10, 11 to read. Okay. And um, different parents have different comfort levels. It, it speaks to a lot of difficult issues, um, yeah. including like LGBT questions, including abortion, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But I think the reality is, especially if you, you know, if you like me, if your kids are in public school, they're encountering these questions from right. their friends and their teachers already. Like my eight-year-old is already encountering, um, you know, her, her teachers talking about um, transgender questions, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're kidding ourselves if, if you're a parent. Uh, um, I think we're probably kidding ourselves to think that we we can wait until some you know, time in the future when our kids are old enough to have adult conversations. I think actually we can, um, we need to start laying those foundations yeah. now. 
Would you recommend it? even like the adult, the parent reading the adult version, the kid reading the kid version, and having a discussion? Is it kind of designed for that kind of interaction? Or um... yeah, that kid, that kid. Well, I've I've not quite thought of it that way. Um, <laughs> I have had some adults say that actually they found the kids' version sort of worked better for them because it's it's a lot shorter. It's covering mm-hmm. the same content but in a less sort of uh, academically. Um, Fewer mm-hmm. footnotes, let's put it that way. Still some. Yeah. I can't write a bit without any footnotes. Yeah. Still some. Lots I, I, of Disney I've had the same feedback with my book, um, Living in a Gray World, um, A Christian Teen's Guide to Homosexuality. A lot of parents who who may maybe not are not like natural readers, you know, they're like, ah, I right. don't I read like two books a year. I'm that's not that's not how I learn. They found the shorter, kind of more conversational version. Exactly. Easier to digest. So, well, Rebecca, thank you so much for what you do. I mean, I love that you have a smile on your face. You're engaging the the most volatile topics of our day, and you're doing so with. I I mean, I love. I mean, obviously, I should get a PhD from Cambridge. Obviously, it's going to be intellectually like sound and careful. But your posture and your humility. And your willingness to say, yeah, we need to repent from this and we need to be way more kind here. We got this wrong. Like, I think that posture is what is absolutely needed in these conversations because then Christians, I think, will maybe be actually listened to a little more when people see us having a more humble posture. So thank you for modeling, modeling that. And thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. You're welcome.